today's sermon passage is found in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. If you haven't already done so, go ahead and take your Bibles and open them to Exodus chapter 2. If you're just rejoining us for the first time, we are continuing our series through the book of Exodus called Our God Saves. Now, if you have been with us, you might be a little confused because two weeks ago when we left our main narrative, we were in Exodus chapter 11, and today we're in Exodus chapter 2. Now, I know preachers are not often renowned for their math skills, but I promise we haven't forgotten how to count. There's a reason behind what we're doing. You see, we are getting ready to enter into the story of the Passover, which is one of the most significant moments, not only in Exodus, but in the entire Bible and therefore in all of history. And we feel like it is important before we do so to take a couple of weeks, stop and slow down and go back and look at some of the things that we had to take very quickly as we have worked our way through this series so far, because we want to fully appreciate just what God is doing. As you see, there's a reason we have called this series, Our God Saves. Because as you read through the book of Exodus, it becomes abundantly clear that this is a story of how God has worked through history and peoples and nations to accomplish his purposes and to keep his promises to his people. Not only that, but he does so in ways that are continually surprising. They would be even shocking, except that I fear we've become so comfortable with these stories that they don't do that to us anymore. So let's work to fight together. Let's work together to fight against that sense of complacency this morning. Let's not lose sight of how extraordinary is our God and his works and his ways. Because how sad would it be to open the word of God to read this story of how he has superintended all of history to keep his promises to his people and then not be moved to worship. Because that's what he has done. And he does so with with the goal of demonstrating to all the universe and so that all of history might declare not only that he is great, though he is, not only that he is glorious, though he is, but that he is good, And shame on us when we forget that, when we feel the need to apologize for who our God is, because that's what this series is about. That's what this whole precious God-saturated book is about. And it highlights the main point of our sermon this morning, which is this, God has made promises to his people and he can And he will keep them, no matter how dark the present moment may seem. And that seems straightforward enough, and it is. But look, here's my burden. But before I start, can can I take a moment and just share with you what was on my heart as I prepared this week? What if you said no? That'd be awkward. I'm going to share it anyway. But but as as I was reading these texts again, about how God chose for himself a people, how he conquered this mighty empire. He delivered them out of slavery. I thought, that's good and that's important. And we're going we're to talk about that. And then I thought about how this ultimately points to Jesus and God's promises to work with him. And that's very important. 
And of course, we're going to talk about that. But what I thought about was you, was the people of Redeemer. You were on my heart this week because I thought about all that's going on in the world right now. Whether it's a global pandemic, whether it's these racial and other tensions that continue to tear at our communities and our sense of unity, or whether the fact that we're less than fewer than two months away from an election where I know, thankfully, we're all going to treat with forbearance those who disagree and charity toward our brothers and sisters, right? Right? Because we remember that no political program or party or personality can save us, right? We're going to remember that in these next two months. But I thought about that and I remembered that we're going to see a God who is big enough to shepherd his people through those things and more. And you, you know what? That's good. But sometimes in a, in a weird way, I think looking at this, this big, grand greatness of God almost feels too remote. Because we think, okay, well, sure, sure, God, he, you care about these big world historical things. But the enemy tries to tell you, but he doesn't care about you. Because while the world goes on, you wonder, where's my next paycheck coming from? Because my whole industry has been wrecked by this virus. Or while the world goes on, you don't know what to do because your husband or wife has walked in and said, I've had enough. While the world goes on, you think, if I have to get these kids through one more day of some kind of weird kind of school, I'm going to kill them all. Don't do that, but the feeling is understandable. Or you think, while the world goes on, does anybody here even know what I'm going through or much less care? We do by the way. But we're going to see this morning that yes, God does know and God does care very, very much. And you know, when you take those two things together, a God big enough to oversee all of history for his purposes and a God intimate enough to know every detail of your life, that's when something uniquely amazing happens. That is when you find a God who will point to you and you and you and you and you and you, and me, and who will say, I love you. Though you may hate me and rage against me with everything that you have, I love you, and I have sent my son to die for you. And if you will repent of your sin and believe in him, you will be saved. You come to me when you are heavy laden. You come to me when you need rest, and I will give you these things. That is the God who is revealed to us in this passage, a God who knows and a God who saves. And that is who I desperately want you to see today. That's what has been on my heart this week is that you would see this God. You may say, wait, is that, are you sure that's all in those three little verses? It is, but we have to look at it with fresh eyes and open ears. And so trusting God to give us these eyes and these ears, look with me again in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25 that Spencer just read. And let's see clearly a God who saves. As you do, our first point this morning is this. God made a promise. So look at verses 23 and 24. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. 
Now, I want to take these two verses out of order because I think it will help us better understand the context of the passage because we know that people are in bondage and they're crying out. And we're going to come back to that. But look at what it said in verse 24. It said that God heard their groaning and remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, what is going on there? Well, if you're new to the Bible, you need to know for our purposes this morning that a covenant is simply this. It's a formal promise between two parties. And theologians will tell us that there are five formal covenants in Scripture between God and humanity. The first is the Noahic covenant because it was made with Noah. The Abrahamic covenant, Abraham the Mosaic covenant with Moses, the Davidic covenant with David, and then the new covenant. Now, especially nerdy theologians will tell you there might be three more before the Noahic. For the, this morning, we just don't care. If you're really interested, you can talk to Josh Hayes, Stephen Carlson, they'll blow your mind, it'll be great. But today, I want us to really focus on the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant. So to understand the Abrahamic covenant, which is what is referenced here in Exodus 2, we need to turn back several chapters and 400 years in our Bibles to Genesis chapters 12 and 15. So put your little ribbon here in Exodus 2 and turn with me over to Genesis 12 and 15. There are two components to the Abrahamic covenant, and I think it's worth taking time to read slightly longer excerpts of Scripture to feel the full weight of the promise that God has made to Abraham. So look with me first at Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Notice how God is the primary actor there. He's the one driving this promise. We'll next turn over to Genesis 15, and we'll read several verses, starting in verse 5. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Jump down to verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring, I give this land. So we see that all the way back in Genesis 12 through 15, God made two promises to Abraham. First, that he would make of him a great nation. And second, that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. In making these promises to him, he also told him a few other things that would happen in the course of keeping these promises. First, he promises to give Abraham and his wife, Sarah, a child, which seems unremarkable until you remember that they're in their 90s. Second, God also told him that his offspring would be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they're going to be servants there and afflicted for 400 years, which is where we find ourselves in the Exodus story this morning. And then third, he tells him that he's going to deliver his offspring from their oppression, and he will give them what we know as the promised land. And that's what we're going to begin to look at in a couple of weeks. So taken together, this forms the Abrahamic covenant. So when you hear that, this is what it's talking about. And that serves as the backdrop for this morning's passage because for 400 years, 
These promises have shaped how the people of Israel have understood who God is and what they are expecting him to do. And that's why they're crying out to him now. So what does scripture tell us about God's reaction to their cry? It says that he remembers this promise. Now, this is not remembering in the sense of, oh, it's been 400 years. I better do something about this. No, this is remembering in the sense of it is time to act. Now is the time for God to move. Which brings us to point number two, God kept a promise. So that gives us a greater sense of understanding about why verse 23 says, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. This is not just a plaintive cry because life is hard, though that would have been understandable. No, this is that deep cry for, for God to be faithful and to keep his promises to them. And it's not, it's not a mild ask here. This is, this is from the gut of them saying, you promised! You said you would deliver us! Keep your promises! I can yell at Jamie too. But, but th th this is what this is. It's been 400 years. Are you going to keep your promise? And that's, that's where we find ourselves because they've grown from this little family of 70 that Joseph brought down to Egypt to number in the millions. So God's kept the first part of his promise. They've become a great nation. But don't you know, right this moment, it probably feels like a little bit of an empty promise. Like, gee, thanks for nothing, God. Like, yeah, there's a bunch of us, but we're all slaves. That's not all that great. Now, I wonder, I wonder if sometimes we feel that way about God's promises. We probably wouldn't say it quite that way out loud, but maybe down here in the gut level, we wonder, gee, God, thanks for nothing. So what can we learn from this? What does this tell us about the people of God? about God and about ourselves. I think we can glean three things from this passage. First, we learn that the people's hope could not be placed in human institutions. Look what it says in verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. I think that's such an interesting comment. And I wonder how many of them hoped that maybe, just maybe, with the changing of a government, with a new Pharaoh, things would get better. But it didn't, it didn't bring about their liberation or their salvation. It makes me wonder if this affected the author of Psalm 146, who later wrote, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord. Because God is teaching his people here that they are and must be totally dependent on him. And it's the same for us because he alone can save. He alone is the one who will never fail us. I'm reminded of an address given by an author named David Foster Wallace back in 2005 at Kenyon College. And Wallace was no Christian, but he got this point. He understood this very well because he said there, pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will feel you never have enough Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, you will always feel like a fraud, worrying that you will ultimately be found out. He goes on, but you get the idea. 
There is only one right and satisfying object of our worship, only one source of hope who will never fail us. So I think that's the first thing we learn here. Secondly, we learn that just because it may take a long time, and even if it is very, very hard, and even if it means enduring the most grievous evil, God is still working. And I wonder who needs to be reminded of that today. Because whether you are assailed by evil in your own life or you just despair at what's going on around us, do you remember what Joseph declared in Genesis chapter 50? He told his brothers who had sold him into slavery, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That's what's happened here. They're still alive. And friends, that is still true. No matter what evil may assail us, if you belong to God, he is always, and I mean always, always, always working for your good and for his glory. And I want to be careful because that sentiment can be used in some really glib and callous ways to just ignore evil, sweep things under the rug, and be like, well, we don't have to worry about it. God will take care of this. So I want to acknowledge that we must avoid that. Consider, though, God's people cried out for 400 years. And it reminds me of the famous quote from Martin Luther King in his 1968 address at the National Cathedral. He said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And we affirm that because we know who's bending it. Because you see, God's timing is always perfect. His justice is always perfect perfect. All his ways are perfect. And in him, our hope is made complete. And then the third thing I think we learn is that sometimes we are called to a life of mundane faithfulness. Consider in those 400 years, how many hundreds of thousands of people were born, lived, died. They weren't there to see God work in the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. They certainly aren't here to see God now work through Moses and Aaron to deliver them from their slavery. But you know what? They were still just as precious, just as significant, just as valued in God's eyes. And I know that contradicts everything we are taught, especially as Americans, but even as Christians about what it is to be great but I wonder, do we believe that what truly matters, what will actually resound in eternity is not whether we're remembered by the history books, but whether today and the next day and the next and the next and for as many days as God gives us, were we faithfully obedient in the same direction for a long time? paraphrase Eugene Peterson, because that's our calling. And despite God's promises, of course, we know that that arc can feel very long. And the people of Israel cried out because they knew it wasn't supposed to be this way. And I wonder, is that, is that where you're at this morning? Are you looking around saying, it's not supposed to be this way? If you are, then listen closely to our third point, which is that God will keep his promise. 
And look again at verse 25 with me. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. You would be hard pressed to come up with two more profound words than that right there. God knew. What did he know? He knew his people. He knew his promise that he had made to them. And he knew that it was time to keep his promise. And this reminds us that when we cry out, we're not crying out to an empty void only to hear ourselves echo back, but to a God who hears, to a God who remembers, and to a God who knows. How do I know that? Because that's what we've been looking at all these many weeks in Exodus. You don't need to turn to these passages, but hear again what the word has shown us the Lord did in response to the cry of his people. In Exodus 3, the Lord says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land. I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction to Egypt, to a land flowing with milk and honey. So God heard their cry. He comes down to deliver them. And let's take a sneak peek to see what's going to happen in a couple of weeks in Exodus 12. Verses 40 through 42, it says, The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. He did it. He kept his promise to his people. Now, maybe you think, I'm glad. Really, like, I'm so glad that God did that for his people. But, but is he still a God that makes promises? Is he still a God that keeps them? Friend, brother, sister, yes. Yes, he is. And I want to tie this all together here as we, as we near the end. In Exodus 6, once you hear this because it's going to matter, after he tells Moses and the people what he's going to do to deliver them, he also says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Did you hear what he told them? He said, I'm doing this so that you will know I am the Lord your God. Now, if you know your Bible, that promise should make your ears perk just a little bit. Because if you're new to the Bible, that's okay. But I told you at the start, we were worried about the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant. Now, you can read all about that in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. But for our time together, I just want you to hear Ezekiel 36, verses 26 through 28, where God makes a new promise. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. So how and why does that matter to us? Well, this directly ties to our lives because the New Testament tells us in 2 Corinthians that all of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. And Jesus himself promised us in John 14 through 17 that he would not leave us as orphans. He would come to us. And until then, he's going to give us his Holy Spirit who will guide us into truth. And then Jesus prayed for God to give us eternal life. And do you know what he said that is? He said that we would know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That's his promise. And that's what brings this all together because the people of Israel knew that God had made a promise to them and for 400 years they suffered and they waited and they groaned and they cried out and many of them did not live to see the promise fulfilled, but God heard their cries. He saw their affliction and he delivered them. And he's made a promise to us as well, a promise to take our dead hearts of stone and replace them with flesh.
to make us his people and to be our God. Do not leave us as orphans, but to come for us. But just like the people of Israel, the waiting can be hard, can't it? It can be really hard. I'm reminded of a moment in the film version of The Lord of the Rings of all things, where Frodo, one of the main characters, says, I can't go anymore. I can't do this. And his friend Sam says, in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. That's true. I said earlier, I don't know what darkness you're facing, and I don't. But I know it can be awfully easy to put on a brave face for an hour, come here and pretend like everything's okay. You don't have to do that, by the way. You don't have to do that because when you leave out of here, you shut the door, and it's just you to feel like everything's about to fall apart. To think, I don't know how I can get up and face one more day. I don't even know if it's worth carrying on if I get one more piece of bad news. Or I don't know what I'm going to do if I stumble and fall into that sin one more time. No, I don't, I don't know the darkness that is around you, but I know two things. I'm going to close here, and if you've heard nothing else, take these home. One, I know that here at Redeemer, we are not and will never claim to be perfect. But I can tell you this, if you are here, you are not alone. We love you, and we care enough to say, not only are you not alone, but you're not sufficient to go it alone. And I think that can be our greater temptation to say, how are you? I'm fine. No, you're not. Don't do that. If that's where you're at today, don't walk out of here without grabbing me or Jamie or any of our elders or staff or any of our members, frankly, and realize you don't have to do this alone. Secondly, and most importantly, I know the one who has promised not to leave us as orphans, the one who has promised to come back for us and who has promised if we will repent of our sin and believe in him to save us. His name is Jesus. He is the light of the world who will outshine the dark. And he is a promise-keeping God. Now, every week at Redeemer, we remember and we celebrate and we trust in those promises by taking the Lord's Supper together. If you're visiting with us, if you're just new to the life of the church, that's okay. We invite anyone who is a Christian and has made that known to the church to join us in this family meal. And if you're not, it's okay. We're not trying to exclude you except that there's no magic in these things. This is about trusting in who Jesus is and what he has done. So we would ask that you would let the elements pass. But spend this time asking the Lord to search and examine your heart. Confess your sins to him and join us in worshiping him together. Now, because of COVID, we're doing this differently. We would ask in just a moment that someone from your household come up and get enough for your family who will be taking. So we're going to sing. And as we do, you come.